This podcast was recorded from our weekly live stream. To watch this video or see other episodes of The Spiritual Journalist, head to thespiritualjournalist.com or find me on YouTube. You can find a link in the show notes. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Spiritual Journalist. I'm so grateful you found us here, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. It's a topic some of you have expressed interest about as it's come up during other live streams over the past week, and we're going to be talking about the situation playing out in Ukraine. But as a journalist myself, I really believe the best way to learn about anything is to hear from people who've experienced it directly. And we are lucky enough to have one of those people here with us today. She was one of my journalism professors at Cal Poly. Her name is Katya Sengel. And she actually used to live and report in Ukraine. So we're going to be talking to her about her experience there, about the information she's gotten from people she still knows who are in the middle of this situation. And I have no doubt her perspective will leave you with a new perspective as well. So let's dive right into it. I've always been a deeply curious person, talking with anyone who would listen and soaking in as much information as possible. So it's no surprise my love for storytelling led me to a career in journalism. But after nearly a decade working in newsrooms across the West Coast, I realized I wanted to start asking questions you probably wouldn't see on your local news. So I left my job as a morning TV reporter and started The Spiritual Journalist. This isn't just a YouTube channel, podcast, website, or social media page. This is a live conversation where you get to ask questions too, because I'm not the expert. I'm not here to tell you what to believe. My goal is to connect you with people who have profound experiences and inspirational stories to share. And we'll definitely mix a little astrology in too. So if you're like me, you have this insatiable curiosity and you love deep conversations too, well, this is the place for you. Together each week, we'll explore everything from crystals and tarot to mental health and the environment. There are no wrong questions here. My ultimate goal is for you to come away from each episode with a new perspective and an expanded consciousness. This is a channel for the collective. This is a community for the curious. This is The Spiritual Journalist. Hi there. Thanks so much for agreeing to come chat with me today. Thank you for having me. It's the uh, first time I've gotten to be interviewed by a former student, so it's kind of exciting. Well, I am very much honored. Uh, so for those of you who don't know Katya or maybe don't know me either, she was one of my journalism professors at Cal Poly back in, it was 2014, right? It was your first year teaching there. Mm -hmm. so I was in your very first class. And as all of this news was coming out about Ukraine, I was like, why do I, why do I kind of know about this already? I, this is oddly familiar. And I happened to be using Google Slides for another project I'm working on and saw an old presentation from your class pop up. And I thought, oh, wow, that's random and also very synchronistic. And so, you know, I, I started mentioning the conflict happening there on other live streams that I've been doing over the past week. And people overwhelmingly said, thank you for talking about this. And then I just figured, you know, you are someone who lived in Ukraine, who you, you reported in Ukraine, you know people who still live there. What a better 
there, there isn't a better person who could speak to really the democracy or the fight for democracy in Ukraine. That's a, a lot of what this boils down to. So we're going to dive into all of that. Um, and I just want to first and foremost talk about the intention behind this conversation. And that's just to really highlight what the people of Ukraine have been going through really over the past 20 years, right? Or even 30 years. Yeah. And so um, my knowledge, it's just my particular knowledge as a journalist and from being there and it's more earlier when I was there, um, 2000 to 2003. So kind of the real post-Soviet and it's changed a lot since then. So I can kind of fill in some of the background in some of those things. Um, but it's just one perspective of many. Absolutely. And that's the most important thing to remember with this topic of conversation and any top of topic of conversation. We're only seeing the person's perspective who's speaking to us. So just something to keep in mind. Um, but I really want to start from the beginning because your story provokes so many questions in me. We usually start these episodes with a deep dive into our guest's astrology chart, but there's so much more to talk about with you. So for those of you who love the astrology charts, I just want to point out that Katya is a Gemini, right? And um, Geminis tend to be very curious people. They love taking in information. They love sharing information, which makes you a perfect person to be a professor, to be a teacher, and to be a journalist. Have you always been really curious? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um... Writing was kind of how I got into journalism, but even as a kid, um, I used to keep in high school a little scrapbook of news stories and things, and I just had the title on it, I think, The Question or something. My mom's like, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. It's just things I find fascinating and I'm curious about, and so I keep them in this little folder. You're like, I don't know, Mom. I'm just a Gemini. This is what we do. <laughs> I love that. So you grew up on the West Coast, correct? Yeah, I grew up in um, the East Bay Bay Area, mostly um, Berkeley, um, mostly Berkeley, some Albany, some Oakland, you know, the, the, those areas around there. Um, and I am uh, the generation where I remember the Cold War, you know, that was going on when I was younger and um, with a name like Katya, which is Russian. There are also German versions and other versions, but um I definitely was curious about the Soviet Union because it was also, it was a place, it was not until I think I was closer to eighth grade in high school that it started falling apart. And so for a long time, it was just kind of this um, mystery. And so I think that was always intriguing to me. And then the name also, because people would assume, you know, I had some connection there or something. So it made me curious about what was going on there. I think that's such an interesting place to start literally with your name because I'm someone who believes everything happens for a reason, you know, and just something as simple as your name opened up this whole scope of your curiosity about that part of the world. So are your ancestors Russian? Do you have ties to any of those countries? Is that why you're named Katya or is it totally random? Um, there is some connection, both my parents, American born, but um, my dad is full-blooded Slovak. Um, and so my last name's a little different, Sangle, and the spelling's different. Um, and so my mom wanted to give me a first name that kind of fit with my last name, but my dad's parents wanted me to be American. They didn't want 
Slovak name. Um, so they wouldn't help with the names. So my mom just um, got out, I think, I think she ended up reading War and Peace while pregnant with me too, but she also got out like a Russian dictionary. She's like, uh, Russian close to uh, Slovak, I'll just go with this and um, chose it that way. <laughs> I love even while you were still being formed, there's already this Russian influence on your life, your mom reading War and Peace. So you went to college, you studied journalism, you knew you were a curious person, you knew you loved to write. At what point did you decide, okay, I want to go to that part of the world and I want to see it with my own eyes? Actually, it was kind of um, a fluke in some ways. Um, I had lived, my stepdad's British, and so when I was in eighth grade, right after my mom married him, we moved to England, um, and it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> Looking back, it's like, you know, but when you're 13 years old and you're uprooted and everything, um, looking back, I'm very grateful for it. But so when I got back, I said I was never leaving the U.S. again. I was never leaving California, et cetera. And um, so my whole college career, I interned at newspapers, but I didn't um, study abroad or do any of that. I was, you know, I kind of closed that off. But there was this ad um, and it was just really well written. I found out later, you know, it was written by another journalist who was good at kind of the marketing angle. Um, And it was just about, you know, if you've got the guts to do this, if you want to explore, if you want to go to a place, you know, that doesn't have all the Western amenities, because this was still you know, less than 10 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, things hadn't fully um, worked out in a lot of ways and things. So it was still it was still kind of an unknown and an adventure. And I, I kind of just took, um, and that was for a job in um, the Baltics, which was, it was an English language newspaper that was covering Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And to be truthful, I knew nothing about any of those countries except Lithuania had done really well in the Olympics in basketball and they had cool tie-dye shirts. And so I just applied almost a little bit like on why not, you know, I'm going to be graduating from college. Um, It's an adventure. It's a thing. And then I got an interview first. I was like, okay, well, I want to impress on an interview. And then they offered me the job. And by that point it was like, well, I guess I take it. It really wasn't super well thought out. It was just like, I guess if I get the job, I go. If I don't, I don't um, let it go, I guess, up to chance a bit. So how old are you at this point? Back then, so I was right out of college. So I guess, um, what, 21, 22, I think. Okay, okay. Uh, and you're this, I mean, you'd seen parts of the world before. You lived in another country, but what was your first take or your first realization when you got on the ground, maybe not in Ukraine exactly, but in, in that region, what did you start to notice? Yeah, it was interesting because yeah, I had um, lived abroad and things, but it was more very Western Europe. You know, it was London language, the same um, different culture, but more similar than um, post-Soviet. The the first thing I remember is no one smiled. Um, And of course, Americans smiled more than probably any place, but in England, people still smiled. Um, and <laughs> so you get off, everyone's kind of wearing, back then it was the black turtleneck for men, but everyone was wearing dark colors and, and no smiles. And I was just like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, and I think how little I knew as well. I mean, obviously I was, I was quite young, um, but there was, <laughs> I put this in my book where there was um, 
a layover in some country on the way to Latvia. And I ran into like some American missionaries and they're like, so um, where are you going? And I told them, they're like, oh, do you have a, the, the paper that's hiring you? Do you have a copy of it? No. <laughs> and they're like, um, so who's picking you up at the airport? I'm like, the person who hired me. And they're like, oh, do you have his phone number? I'm like, no. <laughs> do you have his address? All these things. And I was like, no, I've just packed up a year's worth of stuff, you know, a bunch of stuff to move to someplace. And I realized I really didn't have a lot of information. Um, and they're like, oh, did they already, um, how do you know they're going to pay you and all these things? And I'm like, they bought my ticket, but I guess I just had, um, yeah, realized right then. I was like, I really don't know what I'm getting myself into. Um, and then when I landed, I think, yeah, that was a big thing for me was the, that demeanor. And then I, um, for Latvia, it was the cold was a big thing, just being from California and not realizing um, when it snows and then snow just doesn't go away it stays for <laughs> and you never yeah. see the ground all that time and kind of how you need to have separate shoes for inside and outside and just um those truthfully as a Californian were, were the big things that kind of surprised me at first I love how innocent you were you can tell that you just were this bright-eyed college graduate looking for an opportunity looking for something to speak to you and you just kind of followed, it sounds like your intuition or your heart or whatever you want to call it. Um, so you get over there, you, I'm hoping someone picked you up from the airport. Yes. <laughs> and, and so how did this all unfold? How did you actually end up in Ukraine from Latvia? Yeah. So I was about, I think it was about 14 months in Latvia. I liked it a lot. Um, learned a lot, got to do a lot. It was a really nice crew at the newspaper, a mix of like Latvians, um, Americans, Canadian, uh, um, English. So we had a nice group of people and a lot of us around the same age range. And so we hung out together and, and it was a lot of fun. But then after, um, towards the end of that first year, a lot of people were choosing to leave, um, including one of my closest friends was leaving. And um, it was clear, like if I stayed, I'd be in line to be editor later and I did not want to be editor. And um, I just, it, it felt like Latvia was wonderful, but it is a smaller country. And I kind of, and it, it gets limited attention from the world. Um, and so there was only so much, I was working in the English language newspaper, but I was also freelancing. And there are only so many stories I could sell from Latvia just because very small country and limited interest. Um, and, and so I came back to the U.S. at first and kind of applied for jobs and they all seemed really boring after having worked in Latvia where a lot was going on um, and dealing with, you know, uh, kind of still, still kind of transition years of getting used to a free press and uh, more open society and those things and such a rich history. Um, and uh, you felt even though it was the English language paper is um, a smaller publication, you felt pretty important because all the business world read it. Um, all the kind of uh, embassies, all those people, the political people were reading it because English is kind of that language. And so you really could have an impact on some of the money coming in in the program. So um, when I was looking at jobs back in the U.S., what I qualified for were, you know, um, 
the beginning jobs that just seemed boring after that. So I ended up going um, to London first to work for uh, internship at the BBC. And then from there, I had a place to stay in London because of um, my stepdad being British, um, at least for a little while I had a place. <laughs> and then I just started looking, okay, where can I go? I actually applied to um, an English language newspaper in Georgia. Um, but at the time, Georgia was actually engaged in a war and the editor informed me, yeah, yeah, he'd love to hire me. I, I was great, but he just couldn't pay me because the war was going on and there wasn't electricity and all these other things. So I was like, yeah, that's not gonna work. Um, and so I contacted the English language newspaper in Ukraine and I was really interested because I didn't wanna go to Russia. Russia was huge. You have the St. Petersburg time, Moscow time, and it was just too big a market actually. You know, there are too many people already were there and um, Ukraine felt more comfortable. Um, it, it was big and really important, but it wasn't huge. Um, and so it just felt like uh, a good place to be. And so I reached out to the editor and he didn't have any jobs, but um, he had me apply anyway and said, you know, if a job comes up, and then I just kept at him until he found a job for me and um, I flew there. I know any young journalists or aspiring journalists who might be watching this, persistence is everything. It doesn't matter if you're in TV journalism, in newspapers, I don't, you know, persistence, newspaper editors and uh, news directors appreciate that for sure because it shows them that you will do that on a story as well. So I just, just a fun little tidbit from hearing your story. I'm like, every journalist who's ever gotten anywhere has said something like that. Like, I just kept at the, the news director of where I wanted to be. So you eventually get a job at this newspaper. What publication was it? Uh, Kiev Post. Unfortunately, I think it was about, it was in the last year it shut down. Um, it had undergone different ownership over the years. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, different issues, especially during some of the revolutions and things were sometimes, um, uh, but yeah, so it unfortunately, um, very sad, uh, has, has closed, but a lot of the people who still, um, work there when I knew it or after are still there, um, and, uh, kind of have a, there's a great knowledge base there. I, again, it was kind of a mix of, you had Americans, you had Ukrainians, um, Trying to think, I don't remember. Well, when I was there, it was mostly Americans and uh, Ukrainians. Um, I don't remember other types. So I want to talk about sort of the political landscape when you went to Ukraine, because this is after the fall of the Soviet Union. This is post Chernobyl, which was kind of the precursor to the fall of the Soviet Union. And Ukraine is now trying to become this independent nation. This has been, I mean, this is still playing out right now as we're seeing on, you know, the national landscape right now, but, or, or the international landscape, I should say. But this has been an effort for the past 30 years for Ukraine to become an independent nation. And a lot of that had to do with trying to establish a free press. I think something we can all learn from Ukraine as Americans watching this play out is how important freedom of information is. A lot of people don't realize if they've never studied journalism that a free press is part of our constitution, part a cornerstone of our democracy. So was that part of the appeal to you? Like the free press is really trying to take hold in Ukraine. I wanna be part of this. 
I, I can't say it, it appealed to me, um, but it was interesting. It made it very interesting. And I did, um, I think mostly just would appeal. I've always been better at like the personal stories than the politics. So I didn't think about it as much when, but it was definitely there. And so when I first went was 2000, I'd gone to Latvia in 1998. And so um, again, it was still, things were still being figured out. Um, and it has changed dramatically since then. And so I can't talk as much about that. But in this, we're talking, it had um, less than a decade since uh, Soviet. And so there was a lot of fear. There was so much fear about talking to uh, journalists um, and, and saying things sometimes related to the government, sometimes just talking in general, there was just a, a ton of fear, especially the older generation. So much so that I remember I left in 2003 and I took a job um, in Kentucky at a newspaper and I'd make calls and ask people if they talked to me and they'd be willing to talk to me. And I was like so surprised because no one ever wanted, it was just so hard to get people to talk. And, and why is that? Try For people who don't understand, um, you know, I am fortunate enough to, my, my dad's wife is from Belarus, so I have a little bit of background of kind of, she grew up before the USSR dissolved. I've heard a little bit of her perspective on just what it was like to grow up in the Soviet Union, to experience Chernobyl as a child. But where did that fear come from? Why were people so hesitant to talk to the media? Yeah, because there was a lot of repression um, and uh, you're just fearful of what the government could do if you say the wrong thing, um, if uh, your job could be at stake. The government controlled so much, you know, um, they they control where you live, your job, all sorts of other things. So if you say something that might uh, be taken the wrong way, you risk a lot. You also risk um, the safety of your friends or family. If you speak out, people get in prison, those kind of things. I think um, Ukraine, even at that time, I was trying to get some stories that couldn't have been told during Soviet times as much, such as um, Ukraine had uh, basically an artificial famine um, back before World War II. And, and that was Stalin's policy um, it's much more complicated than that, of course, but it had to do a lot with um, Stalin's policy and that um, uh, locking up grain, even when there was grain and kind of people starved to death when there was actually some food. Um, and um, it was a huge thing, but you couldn't talk about that when Stalin was still in power. And even after Stalin was power, towards the end of the Soviet Union, you might be able to bring it up a little, but... Um, so even when I was there and I found a famine survivor because the older generation, not a ton left anymore, there was still a fear about talking about it. And she had not talked about it that much because she said you couldn't during those times because, um, and so some of those stories were lost and people didn't know. Um, in recent years, there's been some movies and there's been a lot more on it and other people kind of slowly learned about it, but it, it was limited how much could be out there because of that. Um, I guess another example would be a woman who um, I interviewed who during the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, she had actually been um, slave labor. So Ukrainians, some Ukrainians were set to, sent to Germany to work in German factories. So you're forced, it's slave labor. Um, and she came back to Ukraine and 
um, was penalized by Soviet rulers for serving, working for Germany, uh, even though she had no choice. And so she never talked about that. She was blacklisted, kind of didn't get jobs, didn't get those kind of things. So it's just um, no win situation in a lot of ways with um, different leaderships and occupiers. So just fear of um, what, what could be done to you. It's almost hard to wrap our brains around it those of us at least who grew up in Western society, especially in the United States, where freedom is a privilege we're afforded right when we enter the world, just being born in this country. Um, but just, you know, talking to my dad's wife, some of her closest friends, who actually, I believe her best friend um, grew up in Latvia. So it's, it's not even just that it's just in Ukraine or just in Russia. It's like this culture of post-Soviet states where the government, it's very much a dictatorship, right? Like you don't get a second chance if you're, you're not even pulled over. You know, if you're stopped by police, you're going directly to jail. There aren't warnings. There's not like this innocent before proven guilty like we have here. So I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from as well, or at least at that time when people didn't want to speak to journalists, because it's not like you are assumed to be innocent in these countries. And, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I, I think definitely that it's very different. There wasn't the freedom. There was, I mean, it goes back and forth, though, because it was, Ukraine was after 91, it was free, but there was still... <laughs> There were still, there were um, repressions and things, but it, it wasn't like it was always automatic. You were guilty or something like that, but there was still fear of the past repressions. And then there were still repressions during that time, but it went through different phases, different types and different levels. So, um, and I think there's a, a programming there, right? Like, especially you said, older people grew up in the Soviet Union where it, it's, like essentially Russia is your dictator. So, you know, I'm sure I, I can only imagine what it would be like still living in Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union, trying to come to terms with allegiance and rules and who's in power and who has control of you. And again, it's the conflict now we're seeing really come to a head right now where Russia is trying to keep a finger on Ukraine. And it's kind of this middle piece of the puzzle they're trying to hold on to. Um, of course, to assert power. So you're living in Ukraine, you're this young 20-something American, and you start reporting on these stories. And as you mentioned, your focus was really on telling people's stories. What did you start to learn in that time about that part of the world? Like what kept you there and kept you curious? I think a big thing was those stories that I felt hadn't been heard enough yet. There were uh, incredible suffering and incredible, not just suffering, though, strength. Um, and I definitely wanted to make sure more of those were heard, especially because that generation got older and such. So those were two strong examples, like the uh, famine and then those forced to work um, slave labor in Germany, that people still I hadn't learned in school. I don't think um, a lot of other people knew as much about. And so I, I definitely wanted that. And then I think um, then things got interesting, too, in that it started. Uh, this was before the Orange Revolution. 
my, my friend Sveta, she's like, oh, we've had a lot of revolutions. Um, but so there was, um, I think it was around 2001 when there started being a lot of government protests and there was a lot of repression around that. And when you talk about like freedom of the press, what had kind of um, started some of that was Gregory Gungadze, a uh, journalist, um, the the government was implicated in killing him and he had been um so so definitely i uh there was a lot of that going in so it became important to try i felt as an american there i was able to do things that ukrainian port reporters might not be able to because they weren't safe like I was. Um, I could leave. Um, they couldn't. And so the Kiev Post, it was actually interesting. A lot of times um, other local publications would say the Kiev Post is reporting, um, you know, that the government is implicated in the killing of a journalist. And then they're not saying it themselves. And so they're safer from government repression. But the Kiev Post um, was at the time owned by an American and um could be pressured, like we'd get tax inspections and things like that and stuff. But we had an ability to to kind of tell things that um, couldn't. So then, and I didn't get into the politics side of that as much. There were other reporters covering that, but I would get into kind of um, following around some of, going to some of the protests and seeing what it was like for the people with uh, people camping out in tents. And so going, spending a night with them, seeing what that is like, or, or following up after protesters end up in the hospital, those kind of, just looking at trying to get the people stories there. So, um, and then um, the Ukrainian people were incredibly nice. Uh, they kind of, I think as a young woman, kind of on my own, they, they adopted me a bit. There weren't, I'd go to the rural areas, and at the time there weren't a lot of Americans going there, especially female. And so they just like so many, especially the older women, they just throw, just see me and they just hug me and um, there wouldn't be maybe hot water there, but they would find hot water for me and they kind of spoil me a bit. <laughs> it was actually um, nice. I had a lot of, uh, um, especially the women and, and not always just the older women, the women my age looked out for me completely um, and took care of me. That's amazing. And also just speaking to being an American-owned publication, the privilege you guys were afforded, right? I think that's something we don't realize. There's been a lot of talks about privilege within America in the past couple of years specifically, but also just all of us who live in America, regardless of your race, your social class, all have privilege of sharing information, of speaking our minds, of sharing truth that people in a lot of countries do not have. So I just, that's really impactful, I think, to realize that you guys were the only publication that were even uh, sort of allowed to share some of this information, even in a nation that was trying to find their own democracy and find their own way. I also want to go back to what you said about telling stories of people who were forced to go work in factories in Germany because the Nazi movement has come up again during this conflict, right? Uh, Russia is sort of, I don't, I don't want to like boil this down so simply, but part of the reason Russia says that they're invading Ukraine and, uh, you know, implementing these attacks on Ukraine are to stop Nazis from 
taking over Ukraine or, um, you know, taking power in Ukraine. So is that a storyline that's kind of been playing out over the past, I mean, I guess since World War II, but specifically since the fall of the USSR as well? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm not, um, I'm definitely not an expert on it, but as a journalist, I've been interviewing some experts um, for a Smithsonian piece that wanted to kind of focus on that and provide a little more uh, background. I know the first time, and while it's really being focused on Ukraine right now, it actually, um, other areas in the region have similar issues too. Actually in, in Latvia, when I was there, there was every year, there were basically, there were former SS soldiers, um, Latvians who had served under the SS and they would actually march. Um, and it was very controversial. Western press would always come in and cover it and say, this is awful, they're, they're marching. But uh, some of them saw it as they weren't, um, they had been occupied by Soviet, they cannot occupied by Russian, and they had seen, uh, I mean, sorry, Soviet and German, and they had served with the Germans to get their independence from the Russians. So it's, it, it's, it's super complicated, and it's in many of those countries. But yeah, Ukraine in particular, um, similar thing, oversimplifying again, but sort of um, had Soviet occupation, you've got the artificial famine, you know, you've got repressions, you've got all this suffering under Soviet system. And then the Germans uh, promise some of um, the Ukrainian independence uh, fighters that they will give Ukraine independence. Um, and so some of those independence fighters do serve with the Nazis, they do commit atrocities, um, those kind of things. Not all of them, some do not. Um, and and so there's, but they also um, had fought for independence. And so there's this conflicting thing there. Um, and then some of them actually were then punished by the Germans afterwards. So, you know, they were being used by everyone in some ways, but yeah, some of them definitely did um, commit atrocities. A, a lot of uh, really bad, atrocities, um, uh, mass killings during the Holocaust took place in Ukraine. Um, and so then as Ukraine has, um, since independence in 91, has kind of been grappling with this complex history uh, and the how they as an independent country grapple with it is very different than how Russia um, uses it and, and kind of uses that is a way to keep um, Ukraine down until just this Soviet narrative. It's very much going back to the Soviet narrative, whereas Ukraine has um, trying to address this within their own country, their own nation, and come to terms with this. But um, Russia's kind of come in and use that, yeah, as a, a way to say, you know, they're all Nazis, which it's, there was this connection early on with some, but there's no, um, and, and well, then Ukraine in trying to deal with honor, some of the independence fighters, but also acknowledge what they did. Uh, all the experts I've been talking to use the term that, uh, you know, we hear all the time, but we have trouble understanding. There's no black and white, you know, it's very complex of, what was going on. And I think that's just 
a narrative that is harder for people to understand. And so when Putin comes in with this oversimplified, you know, they're all Nazis, it's almost easier in some ways to than the nuance. And I think it's also um, have to remember what had happened under Soviet leadership before Nazi occupation. And so knowing um, the different things and the promises made and all those. So it's a very complicated, complex um, thing. And Putin's just offering one very limited uh, rewriting of history that he kind of um, uses to justify what he wants to do. You know, telling that story, and I know it's still very simplified compared to how deep you can dive into the history of Nazi occupation and World War II and Ukraine being caught in the middle. What I just immediately pull away is this desperation for so many years for Ukraine to become independent, you know, willing to go fight. Maybe beliefs they didn't even fully, you know, align with just to be independent. I think just seeing that perspective, um, I think we can have more empathy, even for people who did fight with Nazis, because of course that's awful, but like the fact that these people for so long, almost a century now, if we're talking about World War II, I mean, 80 plus years have been just wanting to be their own nation and be independent and have sovereignty. Um, so. You know, of course, the geopolitical history of Ukraine is so deep and so complex and we can't get into it all in this episode. But I just I think it's important to remember, like you said, not everything is black and white. And to know that since World War II, Ukraine has been trying to find independence in one way or another. Um, I think that's just really the thing that keeps coming up for me. So. You're in Ukraine, you're learning about all these intricacies that we definitely don't learn about growing up in the US in our textbooks. And I know you also had the opportunity to go to Chernobyl. So of course, Ch Chernobyl, the nuclear site that had a meltdown in I think it was 86, right? And that was kind of this precursor that started the fall of the Soviet Union. It also, in a lot of ways, created a lot of tensions around free information and free press and what was being released by the government and how the story was being told. So what drew you to Chernobyl, which, by the way, is in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very close to uh, the border with Belarus. But uh, yeah, it is in Ukraine. And um, so I think the first um, thing that Again, I was very young in 86, but I do remember hearing about it as a kid when the Chernobyl explosion. And again, information seeped out slowly there. And so it was one of those things I was curious about because we hadn't had as much information then. And then I started hearing about, so this was 2000, 2001, started hearing about people who had moved back to live um, in the exclusion zone surrounding uh the nuclear power plant, they'd kind of put this exclusion zone where it wasn't safe to live. They'd evacuated everyone out. And so I was hearing about um, older people who had decided to move back and live there. But we're talking an area that, you know, at the time they moved back, didn't have services. You're forbidden to go there. Um, and so I was really curious about, I think there had been one book about it. And I wanted to find these people and understand how they're living, why they made this choice. And so that was the first time I went. It was actually um, 
uh, it was hard to get in at that point. Now it's changed. They have like tourist attractions and things. And um, but at the time, scientists could get in. Journalists, if you had a connection. And so I found a kind of independent filmmaker Ukrainian who was from Chernobyl. And so he actually had the papers that allowed him to go back into the exclusion zone because he had grown up there. His family had a house there. And so that allowed me uh, to get in. So I kind of, he was kind of a fixer for me and helped me get access. And he also, I think his grandmother was one of the people who moved back and she knew other people. So that was a way to um, access that and get in. And we actually then also went to his home and that, I mean, it, I don't think you can ever describe as a journalist, you know, you end up seeing a lot of things that um, are incredible and such, but going into his house was one of those that I just definitely will never forget. Um, there was a tree had grown up in front of the front door, so we couldn't even really get in. Um, it was really hard to get in. And then once inside, um, the calendar's still on 1986. And I know that's cliche, but that's really how it was, April 1986 calendar, and it hadn't been changed. And um, going into his little sister's room because she um, was a teenager at the time, and there were all these big hair, 80s heartthrobs, you know, posters on the wall, but Russian ones, not um, American ones, but so recognizing that. And then, um, photos on the ground. And I, I remember he pointed out to me, basically anything of value had been stolen. Um, uh, all the metal had been taken out. So, um, and, and sold as well. So, um, there were a lot of very hard years after the Soviet Union collapsed. And so, um, people took scrap metal, sold it for money, did all those kind of things. So anything of value was gone. Um, and, but there were some photos because no one really, you can't, do much with those. And there was one of him and I think it was his sister or something. And he was like, Oh, I don't have this one. And I was like, well, you should take it. And he was like, no, the dust, you know, the, from there it's contaminated. I can't. And that just struck me that he couldn't even take a family photo because he felt it was contaminated and that would be risking it. So I think that, and there were a couple other things on that trip, um, like the fish we couldn't take either because it was taken there. Um, I, Sorry, my I um I have this thing where I laugh even when things are serious. It's just kind of how I do things. It's actually Ukrainians are great; they have the best sense of humor. Um, so they've endured so much, and sometimes all you can do is laugh. Um, and I, I love that sense of humor. But um, my product of being a journalist too. When you see like hard things a lot of the time in your career, you just have to learn to take things with a grain of salt and keep going, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so and what did you notice when you're in Chernobyl, you know, you're seeing this disaster zone. What did you learn from going and reporting there? Yeah, I think one again was the strength of especially the older women. You kind of call them babushkas, um, uh, grandmas, and they're just tough. So many of them, they've endured so much. Um, and so this one, you know, I'd ask them, well, why are you here? And they're like, um, I'm old anyway, I'm going to die. Radiation gets me, something else gets me. This is my home. And that was one thing they kept saying. This was a very beautiful area. This is my home. This is where I want to die. This is, um, uh, someone tell me also when they were evacuated, they were taken to homes that were, um, 
not well made and fell apart. And they were also some of them were kind of shunned because, you know, no one information was limited about um, radiation and exposure. And so people are thinking they're contaminated, like when they went out on buses and they stopped somewhere to get water. Some people wouldn't give it to them. And so, and so because of those reasons um, and mostly because it was their home, they wanted to go back. And so they endure you know, one woman, when she first moved back, there was no water service um, and there was a fire at the time. And somehow she endured that. And then I can't remember. I don't think there's any post service. Shopping's hard. Everything extremely hard. And then the, they do it because that's where they wanted to be. So the strength um, in that love of home, <laughs> really, I've been someone who's always moved around a lot and things like that. And so that really... I found fascinating. Um, and uh, let's see, what are some of the other things? I think uh, with Chernobyl, so it was just so sad how it all happened and how um, the people were treated. Um, Anatoly was the documentary filmmaker who was from there. And he was living in Kiev at the time because he was older. Um, his sister was still a teenager, so she was in Chernobyl. And he found out about the disaster because I think one of his relatives was on a last bus out of Chernobyl just um, on happenstance. And, but then they, he couldn't talk to his family because they cut the phone lines. Um, they closed the roads. And so he, the only way he was learning what was going on was from BBC radio which he wasn't supposed to be listening to, but he was able to get some of the news there. And so he's really worried about his father and his sister. And finally, when he is able to connect with them, his little sister's like, oh yeah, P, we were exercising outside today because the government try was trying to say, oh, everything's normal, just do this. But it, been doing that, it's risking people's lives, you know, and this poor kid is actually outside. And then he's asking about his dad and she's like, oh, he... He, I think his dad even worked at the plant or something and um, it was made to help clean up and they weren't given much protection or anything like that. And she's like, always drinking vodka because people say that'll protect you and things like, and so it was just so tragic. And he eventually was able to get his sister out, I think on a boat on the river. I mean, it was like, it was that they kept people there and didn't, they um, basically, I knew that from other things, but the there was no, um, no, no consideration of, uh, they don't care what happens to the people, basically, you know, um, it, they sacrifice the people for uh, reputation, for how the government will appear is more important than um, people's lives. And uh, I think Chernobyl was a, a really big example of that. But there, there were others um, as well. And a lot of those stories were just never told for so many years, which I'm guessing is, you know, as you've been saying, you love telling stories about people, probably part of the reason that you were like, there are so many stories here that the world needs to know about what happened here. And, you know, we don't want history to rewrite itself. Nuclear power is, nuclear plants are still active all over the world, you know, it's um, really fascinating. And, you know, of course, the whole information and keeping things from people and not even being allowed to listen to certain news outlets. These are all things that still happen in some countries in that region, right? Um, certain media outlets are restricted or people don't have access to certain information sources. But also during a time of crisis, um, you know, it's even more important to be able to get information from a variety of perspectives. And I think 
a lot of what you're talking about during uh, the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown, we're seeing a lot of those themes play out again this time around. People in Ukraine saying, we're going to stay here. This is our home. We are fighting for it. You know, so many, it's easy for us in America to be like, oh, well, why wouldn't you just leave, you know? And so many Ukrainians, I mean, even Ukrainians who've been living in America are going over there to fight or doing everything they can to raise money, to send resources. Uh, of course, notoriously, president, the president of Ukraine saying, saying he doesn't want to leave fight for the country. I think this goes to show the character of people there. Even you know, so many years ago when the Chernobyl meltdown happened, people still wanting to stay because home is home. And that really means something specifically to people in this culture. And, uh, you know, another theme that I think has come up this time around during this crisis is access to information and how much different it is this time. Um, I think technology just the advancements we've seen over the past 30 years have made a huge difference. Even I'm not sure if you saw how Elon Musk is put Starlink satellites above Ukraine because people were saying we need access to the Internet. We need access to information. Of course, that wasn't even possible during Chernobyl. So how do you think the evolution of technology is playing into people's ability in that region to actually see a more unbiased view of what's going on? Oh, wow. Um, so, so much though. Um, it's like, even when I was there 2000, 2003, I think I had dial up internet. It was super slow. And so it wasn't really restricted as much, but it was just slow. And I think emails sometimes would work, sometimes wouldn't. So I couldn't even communicate. I remember um, I was in Ukraine when 9-11 happened and I couldn't even get email met well i think lines were jammed up too and stuff but i couldn't get a hold of people in the u.s and things and so it was it felt much more distant then um less less connected now um i can um uh my closest friend who's still there i can message her on whatsapp and say hey are you okay and she can write back right away um and it's free too you know and it, it goes there and so that just communication between i think also um they can see you know I, it's hard because i'm not there so i don't know as much i mean i know it, it's and i know what it was like when because there were protests when i was there and what that was like and there wasn't even 2014 there was some attention on ukraine but not like now of course russia didn't attack kiev and you know things like that then but uh took crimea and then got in the east and th there was we saw some, um, but not nearly like now. And I think this actually, I'm stealing from a source I was interviewing, um, plays in well too, that the interest, and I've totally taken this question, not where you were going, but this is interesting, <laughs> um, that uh, the some of the interest is, is she, she was comparing it to post-colonialism actually, um, because cause I was saying Soviet occupation and actually I think it was a heat and he would say, no, it's actually not occupation. Ukraine was well integrated into the Soviet Union. And I said, so what would you call it? And he said, I, I think the best comparison is post-colonialism. And I think there's a lot of recognition now in, in uh, Putin's trying to fight as if he was, uh, you know, um, had colonies still, you know, and so I think some of uh, the world 
fighting for Ukraine now and being really interested is we've had all this um, reconsideration of colonialism and all these other things in recent years and just, I mean, new way of looking at it and that this now is someone who sees it very differently from that new way we look at things and sees it as, um, no, I'm going to, you know, make these people under me. Um, and, and we hadn't seen that in that way. Um, so I think that may be why. Well, yeah, it's so interesting you brought that up because I actually, um, there's this great Instagram account. Her name is Sharon Says So, and she does lots of content on politics and history. She's like America's history teacher. If you don't follow her, she's an amazing follow. And of course, she has talked a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine, answered a lot of people's questions. She's very fair and unbiased. They love her approach. But she made the same comparison to help people understand why the people of Ukraine would fight, why this small scrappy nation is standing up against one of the greatest powers in the world. And she said, I mean, imagine the colonists in the U.S. fighting against Great Britain, uh, the the national or the international power that previously owned these colonies and the people living there wanting to assert their own government, wanting to assert their independence, grabbed whatever they could. They all banded together. And of course, we live in the United States. We know the outcome. They succeeded. So I thought that was such an inspiring comparison, right, to what's going on in Ukraine right now. Even I've seen some analysis about how Ukraine the officials there aren't asking for boots on the ground from other countries. They're just asking for resources. They're just asking for weapons. They're not, they don't want a world war. They don't want other countries to come in and be part of it. They just want international support uh, in the form of, you know, weapons and artillery and things like that. So I, I love that you, you brought that up as well. It's, it's so interesting also this day and age to see a conflict like this playing out because I've seen a lot of people say like, aren't we past this? But it's, we're not, you know, this isn't just going on in Ukraine. These kinds of power struggles play out all over the world all the time. We're just, again, going back to the word privilege, we're just very privileged in the United States to be a sovereign nation. And of course, there's lots of conflict here too. But, you know, just we, we have our solid democracy, we have our constitution and we just fight within within the country instead of fighting other people um so I, I you've talked a lot about the people of ukraine and i want to go into that a little bit more because really my ultimate goal for this conversation is for people to understand what it's like there what people there are going through you mentioned your closest friend you made while you were in ukraine is still there what has the conversation with her been like yeah, it's and um, we had been. She was um, translator. I used the whole time. Most of the time, I was in Ukraine, and basically, we just went on adventures together. You know, I I learned some at the time. Um, Russian was spoken in Ukraine, um, like in Kiev, people didn't speak Ukrainian. Russian was like how you interacted. So I learned some Russian, um, except Western Ukraine. Ukrainian was used. That's changed now, um, but. Um, I was never fluent, you know, I could never conduct an interview and that and such. And so um, Svieta would go with me to every story and we would, um, uh, I trusted her judgment too. She kind of looked out for me and could put things in perspective and said, but Svieta also, um, her, if I recall right, her mom was deported under Stalin from Russia to Kazakhstan. And then 
her dad and mom both came to Ukraine to work in a factory um, during Soviet times. And I'm pretty sure Svieta was born in Ukraine. Her brother lives in St. Petersburg, though. So her, her family is one that's similar. I mean, most of my friends who are Ukrainian or Russian, they have family and friends in the other country. So if they're Russian, they have family and friends in Ukraine. If they're Ukrainian, they have family and friends in Russia. Um, so it, it's very difficult. Um, and, so, you know, when you've got, um, there's this one um, writer I follow on um, Twitter who, here, she's here in the U.S., um, but she talks about, yeah, my family in Russia are being imprisoned for protesting against what's going on in Ukraine and family and friends in Ukraine are being bombed. And so it's um, basically all the people are suffering. So Putin has his agenda, but um, it's, it's harming Russian people as well. But um, Sveta, uh, so her, she was in Kiev, but she got out of Kiev last I heard from her and is in Connie, which um, is not, being attacked as far as I know. It was, I was trying to search online, Connie even bombing, and I didn't see anything. She did say she thought they would be bombed at one point because um, there was a hydroelectric plant there. But from what I've seen, haven't. Um, and I did tell her to kind of tell me. It It's one of those weird things where you don't want to, I can't offer her anything. So I want to know how she is, but I don't want to harass her either because she says they're bombing her can't do anything and I'm just distracting her. Um, uh, I mean, other than send money, I don't know that yet you can ask about people, but it's awkward. It's like, then you can't do anything. And so it, it, it is, I told her, you know, I'm thinking of her and to let me know if she needs anything, but what can she say? I mean, stop the bombs. That's what she needs, but I can't do that. And so, um, it, it it's hard as she it was, it was funny we had just recently reconnected because i stayed friends with people like on facebook and things but i haven't lived there for years so you lose touch with people um and we'd uh i think it was right around the holidays we had um spoken on whatsapp and she was talking about yeah she's the one who said uh oh, all those revolutions and when this first started again she was like ah, yeah, whatever, don't watch TV, you know, but, and I think hoping that she's like, yeah, we've been at war for eight years and it makes it hard for uh, me to go to Russia to visit my brother, but we can still, you know, communicate on WhatsApp and things. But um, yeah, now it's just really escalated. And um, I know she also teaches um, music at the American um, school. And so there are a lot of her students, I'm sure, are gone now. Um, there are also some Ukrainian students there, too. But, yeah, so. But you have to think, this woman, among millions, you know, thousands upon thousands of other people, has literally just left her whole life behind, not knowing if she'll be able to go back, when she'll be able to go back. This is one story out of hundreds of thousands of stories. I saw a figure recently that over a million people have been displaced in Ukraine. So, you know, just this one person, and thank goodness it seems she's in a safe place at least right now, but still in Ukraine, right? Still in the country, hasn't been able to escape to another country, and a lot of people don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's another important piece to talk about here. People in Ukraine obviously don't want their homes to be bombed. Like that goes without saying. But like you said, this war has been going on for eight years now with 
uh, Putin, you know, taking control of Crimea and really like slowly inching in towards Ukraine. This is a long strategic plan that's been playing out for a very long time. A lot of people saying that Putin is trying to put the USSR back together, of course, asserting more power, things like that. Um, but even in neighboring countries, I mentioned my dad's wife is from Belarus, and I just asked her because if you've been following the news, the Russians came in using Belarus, using that border, and also now the Russians have control of Chernobyl, which is a very strategic middle point between Kiev and Belarus. And um, a lot of the people in Belarus don't want the, the the Russians there. You know, they don't want war to be in their home either, but they are still very much under their their president is more in allegiance to putin and people there can't speak out people there can't say like this we don't want this as you mentioned thousands of people are being arrested just for saying stop the war in saint petersburg in these countries that are very much still under russian control so freedom of expression is not a thing in that part of the world in a lot of places and even countries surrounding Ukraine who are being invaded by Russians don't want them there either. So, you know, of course, there are millions of perspectives. Each person has their own story. But I think it's important to look beyond just the borders of Ukraine of this, you know, war that's playing out in countries on either side of that nation as well. Um, and, and it's at a point where we don't really know what's going to happen next right now, but we know this has been playing out for a long time. It's probably not going to end abruptly. It's probably something the people of Ukraine are going to have to deal with for a long time. So um, I guess at this point, I would just love to know what what your feelings are about the situation, knowing people there. I know you have several friends who live there or have family there. How are you navigating all of this? Because you know people who are directly affected. Yeah, I think um, I, I I definitely am not, I, I don't want, I definitely am not nearly impacted as so many other people because there are a lot of friends I know here who have like really close family members there and things like that. And so my, um, how I'm impacted is very small, you know, um, in a way, but even so it's hard, um, to, I haven't actually watched footage and things because that was a place I called home for three years and Kiev in particular, that's where I lived. And I don't want to see places I recognize that are being destroyed. Um, and, and so I actually, um, have consciously, I mean, very selfishly not, looked at a lot of that footage um and i've only um i've reached out to Sveta, I, other people who i'm kind of friends with but it's been years since i've got in touch with them i think about them and i worry about them but i haven't reached out because it's like again what can i offer them and two they'll be like oh you haven't talked to us in five years and now you're you know but it's just it, it, it's strange but i do worry because a lot of them um they're strong they're brilliant they're um, people and they're people who helped me um, when I was there. Who um, I'm thinking of Vika, who has uh, she was kind of the secretary at the um, our office manager at Kiev Post when I was there, and she'd take care of always getting my work permit, but everything else. You know, Vika, I could just go to whenever I needed anything, and I know um, she's just beautiful, strong woman, and, and Vitaly 
her husband and a reporter I worked with um, who's had to deal with a whole lot with um, during other protests and things uh, and restrictions on freedom of press had, I think he stepped down rather than print things he didn't, he was being forced to print and things. So just strong people who have in their lives endured so much. And like with Svieta and her family, there's what they're going through now, but poor Svieta, she's a bit older than me. And so she was, when the Soviet Union collapsed, she had a job. Um, she was a music teacher and she still had a job afterwards. She just didn't get paid. And so for years she had no way to make a living and she had to kind of, as an adult, figure out how to reinvent herself and do something because yes, she had a job, but no one's paying her. And, and how do I do that when the whole system I know collapsed? So she had that, then she had the orange revolution and then the, the kind of um, crisis that went before that and then after, and then now there's this. And, and her mom, I think about her mom who um, grew up um, in, in Russia and then was deported I think she was a her family when she was young to Kazakhstan and literally dumped in the middle of nowhere and told to, you know, make a start of it. And then uh, came to Ukraine and the factory had a good job, had a good life. And then um, that all collapsed. Uh, the factory closed, everything shut down um, and her pension destroyed and all of that and had to start over quite later in life and struggle. Her, and her husband opened up a shop. But I remember when I was there and uh, they were always getting robbed and it was just everything a struggle. Um, and yet when I'd go and talk with her mom, she'd tell me the stories and she'd always say them with a smile and laugh and just like be happy to see me and um, just great people um, who always were welcoming to me. I mean, rare occasions not, but really, um, really welcoming to strangers and, and um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these people whose literally their entire lives have been marred by struggle and war and conflict throughout the history of Ukraine, and they still seem to have such a strong spirit about them. I know you sent me a couple pictures as well, and I want to show them to our viewers here um, because I think they're, first of all, how cute are you, young reporter? Um, tell us what these pictures are showing. Yes, that's actually Svieta and me. And, um, yeah, again, we smile when we're scared to death. Um, that's before we went in the mine. So this is in Donetsk, which is an area that's now Russian controlled, um, Eastern Ukraine, and it's an area you hear about a lot. And it's um, at the time there were issues with the energy sector as well. Um, and the mines were incredibly unsafe um, because they were in bad repairs. We'd get stories in the newsroom in Kiev all the time. This many miners died today in a mine collapse. And, and not that different comparison I made when I got a job in Kentucky after Ukraine that editor did not appreciate. Oh, when he was talking about Eastern Kentucky mines, I'm like, oh, kind of like Ukraine. Um, but we have issues in the U.S. too with mine collapses and, and a mining industry. So uh, coal mining. Um, and so Svieta and I um, were there to report about um, mining and what it was like for these miners lots of politics involved in the energy sector in Ukraine. And I was trying to just get it. Okay. Beside that, what is life like for the miners here? And so I thought to, to really understand that we need to go down a mine. Um, and they kept telling us, um, this is again, early two thousands. Um, you can't, you're a woman, you're bad luck. Um, and whenever anyone tells bad luck. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, whenever anyone tells me I can't do something, especially because I'm a woman, well, you probably know what that is like, Olivia. You've got, <laughs> um, you're not going to take that. And so I kept saying, no, I want to go down. I want to go down. Um, they kept saying no. And then finally, we'd been there a couple of days and it was like, one night at like eight or 9 PM after dinner, after they'd put around, um, uh, numerous shots and toasts and things. And, um, they're like, okay, you can go down to mine. I was like, what really? And I think by that point, I, I didn't really want to go anymore. I was pretty freaked out. I'd seen how bad things were. I'd heard, but now they called my bluff. I'm like, I've got to go. So Svet and I, um, <laughs> are kind of like, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? And we didn't have any clothes. So you can see the clothes are like too big for us and stuff. So they loaned us the clothes and then we're going to get supplies. And this is why it's important for journalists to like actually experience. So um, we're going to get the the helmets and you've got to have a light on it. And so we go in the supply room and get it. And I just take it and put it on. And um, our the guy who owned the mine's like, well, did you check if it worked? I'm like, no. He's like, well, half of them don't work. You better check that it works. And so, you know, that showed me right there um, the condition of, of some of the supplies and things. And so um, then we go down um, and we get to the bottom and we're in kind of the, the mine shaft. They're crawling around and he, he hits the, I, I don't know the terminology anymore, but it's basically the thing that holds up the mine shaft. So we're in like, it's about three feet here and you're crawling in there and he, he starts talking and I'm like, Svieta, what's he saying? She's like, that's what they don't have enough money for. Um, and then it was just like, I stopped taking notes at this point because I was just, I literally, that was probably the scaredest, most scared I've been in my life and realized I'm kind of claustrophobic. Um, and we we were down there. Um, and But again, our smiling here is almost out of fear and just like, what? And another funny story with that though was, so, um, at one point I was like, okay, well, I'm never going to be back down a mine again in my life. And I think I, I had slipped some coal into my boot. You have on these big high boots, um, as a kind of souvenir or something. And so we get back and, um, we're kind of in this area again. And I was just pretty, uh, frozen, freaked out. I don't know what I was. I wasn't really functioning well. And so, uh, one of the Ukrainians, um, pulled off my boots for me, you know, cause I, I needed to, uh, and how came all this coal <laughs> going onto the ground and he was laughing so hard and he's like the Americans stealing from the Ukrainians. And it was just like his sense of humor too, that just kind of shows you. Um, and then the ingenuity, the, the mine owner, he didn't have enough money to, um, pay his miners. And so at the time barter system was in work. So basically I'm like, well, what do you, uh, but that was failing because you pay in a bunch of slippers. But if you pay everyone in town slippers, they're worth nothing. So I, I was like, so how did you solve this system? And um, he, he was raising bunnies. And so he paid his workers with bunnies because at least they could eat them. Um, and then they'd have something to eat. Uh, so the kind of ingenuity there um, and the... I think that's also too, yeah, how they adapt. Ukrainians really adapt. That that goes with all the barter system and those things too. They just figure out a way to make things work. Um, and that's Sveta again. Um, and those are her parents and Connie. Her, her dad has since died, but that's her mom there. And um, that's the shop they owned there um, that they, after they had lost their jobs at the factory, um, 
uh, not, not a factory. It was like a big plant. Um, and they had very high, uh, jobs. They, they had, um, it wasn't like factory makes it sound different, but, um, mm -hmm. it all collapsed, um, after the fall of the Soviet Union and they were out of work. Um, so they started the soul shop. Such a resilient culture, just from that little story and tidbit you've told me. And again, like you have to look at the whole picture, the whole story with Ukraine, really, since World War II, since the fall of the Soviet Union, and think about what the people who've been living there the whole time have gone through, even as recently as the Orange Revolution was in, what, 2004, 2005? And just briefly, what was, what was the protesting about then? So I, I had gone by then. I was the first protest that kind of sparked even the Orange Revolution was when Kuchma um, was uh, the leader and he had been implicated in the killing of Gonskaradza, the journalist. And so there started to be protests, though, but then they kind of died down and then sparked up again with the Orange Revolution. And to be truthful, I'm losing track of what it was that happened that time, whether it was russian interference or if that was you shanko or i <laughs> the exact one just like like your friend was saying revolution after revolution conflict after conflict and truly you know these talks of russia attacking ukraine have been going on for months now it's the headlines have been there it's just I don't think it's the ignorance necessarily of just Americans or the rest of the world. I think it's just the fact that it's like, oh yeah, it's Ukraine. Like, of course there's conflict going on there. There's always conflict going on there. So I think a lot of people didn't really take the threat as seriously as maybe we should have because it's like, uh, okay, another revolution. Even the people who lived there were, were feeling that. So I know we could talk about this seriously all day long you're such a wealth of knowledge and i appreciate that but i do want to point people to uh your book that you released in the past few years right and it's called from chernobyl with love um let me pull it up here tell me why you were inspired to write this book yeah it was actually it was funny i um started i'd had my first book out and this was my third book, but it was really the second book I wrote. Um, and I was trying to think, I just sat down and said, what story do I want to tell? And I just started writing about Ukraine. And what I really wanted to write about Ukraine was the people, because I've done a lot of reporting there and people have read the articles, but I couldn't really put it together as just this story about some of the things I'd come across in the people. And so then I use this love story as the hook because how else do you to tie it all together? And so I kind of use my, and I think some people, I, it's definitely a humorous one because I go at it as this, you know, very young American um, experiencing this and finding the absurdities of post-Soviet life um, that people there also found absurd some of the ways things work. But then from this American outsider experience, uh, uh, background. Um, and, and so then I used, um, because I, I met my ex-husband, he was a photographer at Chernobyl. So I kind of use that to, to wrap, um, to tie the narrative together and kind of give it a hook. Um, but I, I really wanted to, and so when I use myself to get into as an entryway to the stories, but I wanted the stories really about the people and some of the things they had gone through and, and what life was like during this period there. Cause I think a lot of people think, oh, independence 91, everything was, you know, 
great all of a sudden. It was actually extremely difficult um, in most of those countries for the next decade, uh, uh, different degrees in different countries, because the whole system collapses. Um, and there was all sorts of shortages and lines and different things. And so I thought a lot of people didn't really know about that time frame and how it sets up for what comes later too. It's so interesting that you say that because in talking with Olga, my dad's wife, just about her experience, she said something similar that they started to notice that something was happening, that the USSR was breaking apart because different items wouldn't be available in the grocery store or the money was changing. They weren't able to get Russian money as easily. It was all Belarusian money. So, I mean, I, I'm so excited. My copy should be here today. It was supposed to be here before our show, but I, it'll be here today. I can't wait to dive in and really uh, understand your full experience there. And when there's a love story involved, you've got me hooked, you know. <laughs> We love a love story. Something else before we wrap this up that I, I found that I want to show you and the people watching is this presentation that I gave in your class because I think this is a really great way to understand um, even the current state of affairs there. We've talked a lot about the fight for a free press. So you assigned us each a different organization, a news organization from that part of the world. And we, every week we just looked through the headlines and how each organization was telling the story differently. And Pravda, still a publication out of Russia that's very much dominated by the view of the Russian government, correct? It's very much, I mean, biased towards the Russian government. Um, so this was in 2014, tons of headlines, but I think this is really interesting. Um, this is a really great way to understand how the people of Russia, the information they're being fed is very anti-American. And even when you look at Pravda today, so this was of course when Obama was still in office, um, very slanderous headlines toward our government. But I wanna pull up Pravda today right now even still, I just saw a headline today, I want to find it, about, um, it was something similar kind of about Joe Biden. Oh, Joe Biden, while chewing gum on the go, misses new world order. Like, you know, it's just, I think it's important for people to understand and realize how important journalism is, how important free information is, how it completely shapes a government, our view of government, and how privileged we are to have um, news organizations all around our country with integrity that want to report facts and are are doing so to serve people, not necessarily to serve the government. So, I just I wanted to bring that up. It was definitely a a, a, a um, flashback or a blast from the past, is what I'm trying to say looking through all this and remembering your your class and talking about freedom of the press in Russia. A lot of people don't know, I'm probably gonna butcher her name, but Anna Stepanova, I'm not even gonna try the full last name, but she was a Russian journalist. This was, I mean, 10 years ago now, who was killed because she was talking about conflict in a way that the Russian government didn't appreciate and didn't approve of. So there are a lot of brave people in Russia and Ukraine and that part of the world who are still fighting for a free press. And a lot of brave Americans and brave Westerners, just like Katya, who are there on the ground. If you're watching the news right now, if you're watching any national correspondence from Britain or from the United States, these are brave people who are putting themselves in the middle of conflict 
to get you accurate information and to tell an accurate story. And it really feels to me, of course, this has been playing out for a long time since you were there, that the West, you know, the West is coming together to really bolster democracy in Ukraine as a way of saying, um, you know, people deserve access to the truth. I think so. I think, though, Ukraine also got to give them credit because um, they they're Ukrainian journalists that they're in Ukraine wants democracy and is doing strong with that. But I think, yeah, um, the West is definitely trying to support them and has really come come um, at least um, the press for sure in doing that. Um, governments are, you know, do their own thing and everything. But I think, yeah, I think the Ukrainians decided for themselves, you know, they know what they want and they're doing that. But um, I think they definitely learn from different um, Western press earlier on and things and have seemed to have pretty much embraced that by this time. The last thing I want to ask you as a journalism professor for, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the current climate in the U.S., especially who are saying things like we don't really know what's going on over there. We don't really know what the motivations are. Who knows? You know, the stories we're being told in the U.S., if they're to paint a narrative for us to feel a certain way about Russia, what's your advice to the average person who's just looking to find the truth? I think it's hard in some ways because you almost have to look at a lot of different um, uh, information and and kind of uh, always look at who is writing it and who is funding it, you know, so look at bylines um, of the reporter, but also where it's running and and who is funding that outlet. So usually more traditional media has um, the, they try to, as best they can stick to um, unbiased reporting and those things. Obviously we know everyone has a bias. You can't do that. But whereas um, in independent journalism, great too, but you want to look at, how is that being supported? What obligations they might have? I think that's a key thing that sometimes people just throw all media under the bus or something that they don't look at. Okay, no, you really have to look at it and understand who it's coming from, where it's coming from, their backers, all those different things. So as much as possible, kind of looking at at different things. Also, I think um, uh, there's um, some when you're looking for people with perspective at this point historians are really good there's actually um some ukrainian uh study institutes at at harvard and other places and so looking at them and this is less journalism but they've got papers and research papers on it and such they can add the context that i think is important and then also looking for um publications that are really just trying to add that context but not sensationalized so i think you really want to stay away from like the, the video that is getting the most hits and stuff because it not, isn't necessarily, um, yeah, look at who's doing that, why they're doing it and such. And it might be the less popular things that actually are, are um, probably more informative and offer more context and um, more depth to the issue. So I think that that would be my big thing. Yeah, my hope is that with so much access to information, of course, that comes the potential for false information. And, you know, we, we've been dealing with this for a long time, but my hope is that there are real raw images coming and real stories coming out of Ukraine that everybody now has access to and hopefully can 
um, kind of shuffle through all the noise to really come to a place of ultimately, I hope we can all just find some empathy for people dealing with this. We're sitting here in our homes, safe, access to water, access to food. We're extremely rich in comparison to a lot of countries. We're so fortunate. And, um, you know, realizing that, realizing that perspective and having empathy for these people who've been fighting for their freedom for so many years. Is there anything else you want to say before we end this show? Um, it's been really nice actually reconnecting with you and seeing what a former student has done, launched her own podcast. It's, it's actually as, um, as a teacher, that's, that's really fun for me. So I know we're talking about a very serious topic and things like that, but for me to see, and as a teacher, to see you remembered what you learned, um, and know that kind of got out there. And it was also about something I care about deeply, Ukraine, and it got you, um, well, obviously you got interested from what was going on, but, but that has been important. And then also that, um, you, that people now, I, I it is really nice to see how much interest and awareness there is about Ukraine and how people really seem to want, um, to learn about it. And it's just incredibly beautiful country too. I, I know I talked about the people, but actually Kiev is one of, probably one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in. Um, and so just hoping, um, for uh for for ukraine um that well i don't know peace i think that you know that's really um all we can do is put out peaceful energy put out good energy support people if you're feeling called to support or to learn more um katya was kind enough to reach out to people she knows in ukraine and i've added a couple links on the spiritualjournalist.com. You can go to conversations and then click on today's episode. I'll keep this list going as I find more organizations um, to support, but there's a donation site here that directly goes to people in Ukraine. And as you mentioned, donating money is really one of the best things that we can do for people there right now, because a lot of them have lost access to their resources and the things that they've worked so hard for. And then there's um, some information here as well, if you want to dive deeper into what's going on there, the history, the conflict. But I just, again, want to thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Katya's story, I put her website here. It's just katyasangle.com, or you can find From Chernobyl with Love on Amazon and read her perspective, find the juicy love story. You know, we're all here for it. Um, and yeah, I just thank you again so much for agreeing to come on to share your perspective and just speaking your own authentic experience. I think we need more conversations between journalists like this to really show people what it involves going into a country and reporting on these issues. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us, for coming with an open mind. Feel free to share this episode with anyone who's curious about Ukraine, about the history, about the situation playing out there now. Feel free to comment below with your questions. And um, I hope to see you in the next episode. And if we could just all, as we end this, take a moment to just send peace and love to the people of Ukraine who really, really need it right now. So thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode. But until then, stay curious.
Thank you so much for joining our discussion today. If you enjoyed this episode of The Spiritual Journalist, you can find more on thespiritualjournalist.com or you can listen to our conversations wherever you enjoy podcasts. And if you want to learn more about astrology, join me live every weekday morning on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for Transits Today, where we break down the energy of the day based on the movement of the planets and start our morning off in a high vibe. All of the information we share on The Spiritual Journalist is completely free to you. So if you'd like to support more content like this, the easiest way to do so is to subscribe to our YouTube page. Head over to The Spiritual Shop on our website and buy yourself a little something. Or if you're feeling extra generous, you can buy me a coffee to fuel future live streams. Just tap the link in the description or head to buymeacoffee.com and search The Spiritual Journalist. I'm so grateful you found us here and I can't wait for our next conversation.